Blessed are you, Lord, the King of the universe. You have given us your word as wisdom for our lives, that we may see and know what it truly means to be a people that is chosen by you. Thank you, Lord, that you have made the gospel story our story. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your son and adopted us as sons as our soul's reward. Father, as we come into the preaching of your word today, I pray that you may send your Holy Spirit and illuminate to us doctrines that might be hard, that might be complicated to understand, that we may really see what it is, your will, and what it is that's in your heart for us. Lord, bless your servant and use his words, though it is flawed and limited, and use your spirit to empower us that we may see what it is you want us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, good morning again. And today we'll be continuing on our series in the book of Ephesians. We're right now in the middle of chapter 2, continuing on Paul's discussion on our identity in Christ. And one key thing so far that we haven't quite discussed in our series in Ephesians is that how everything in this letter is actually not addressed to an individual, but to a community. It's really clear, actually, in the Greek that every single time the word you is used in Ephesians is usually uh, not a singular you, but a plural you. So it's more like you guys or y'all if you're like a rapper. And it's really important for this because as we study Ephesians, we see that Paul is actually not primarily interested in how individuals are saved although there are definitely a ton we can learn about that. But it's going to become really clear as we continue studying that Paul's main agenda here is to teach Christians in Ephesus, Christian communities in Ephesus, what it means to be a collective of people who are saved. Because remember what we were talking about last week, right? Paul just explained how each one of us has been brought back to life in Christ such that now we are His workmanship, created in Christ for God's work, um, as verse 10 says. And this is not only our individual identity, friends. It's our collective one, meaning that everyone who's been saved by Christ, right, so the church, i.e. us, has been brought into a new public communal reality, A reality, a community that's supposed to live free from the cultural values, political institutions, social dynamics that we were once ruled by. And that now we're operating under a new authority belonging to Jesus. And so our public gathering should be reflecting that, right? This is what Paul is going to go on to explain much further as we study the letter of Ephesians. So this new communal reality that we're really part of really comes into a head in our passage. Because in our passage, Paul will address head-on what would be, at that time, the biggest barrier to the formation of this new creation community, which is the tense relations between the Jews and Gentiles, right, or non-Jews. Now, what is this conflict that happened thousands of years ago in ancient Palestine have anything to do with us Christians in Jakarta 2023? Well, I would propose 
that it is indeed relevant for us because why Christians' communities are divided this day still exists in the same way or in a similar way that it did 2,000 years ago. And I hope that our text today can help us identify that so that we can root it out in our communities. Okay? So let's read our passage taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. This is the Word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Thus says the Lord. Friends, what we just read certainly is not the easiest text for us to understand. And in its original context, it's actually one of the more provocative and controversial things Paul wrote in his letters. And Christians nowadays aren't totally in agreement about what exactly Paul means here. So to even have a shot of understanding this, I think it's necessary for us to get quite a bit of background information about what was going on back then. So do bear with me as I do that. But I think it's worth it, right? Because I think this is one of the key passages that opened the door for Christianity to be what you are witnessing the church as right now. The most diverse religious movement in the history of the world. And this text does this by bringing into view three things. One, what made unity impossible. Two, why only Jesus can unify us. And three, how we can enjoy this unity. These will be our three points, friends. May God help us today because Paul's theology doesn't get much more dense than what we're going to talk about today, folks. So following along in your liturgy printouts is going to be more helpful than usual. Okay, so point one. What made unity impossible? Okay, so let's think about why the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles were so tense back then. The core of the Jewish ethnic identity, and it still is to this day, is that they are God's chosen people. And the reason why they believe that is because God came to their ancestor Abraham to make a covenant with him, promising to bless his family and to make This family, the family through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God instructed for all the males that are born in this family to be circumcised as a sign and seal of this promise. To mark all the descendants of Abraham as this special family that God made this covenant with. That's why they're called the circumcised. 
Okay, so fast forward then, about 645 years after God made His promise to Abraham, the family of Abraham has grown into a sizable nation, now known as the nation of Israel. And God had just liberated them from Egypt and took them up to Mount Sinai. And now, through this guy Moses, God gives this nation a, a bunch of laws and commandments, right? Like 613 of them, which is called the Torah. Now, here is the source of attention. You see, God gave Israel these laws really as a gift. It teaches them how to be a holy nation set apart by the Lord. The laws were a revelation of God's wisdom about how they can be faithful covenant partners with God to show them what a just and righteous society would look like. And it also had instructions about how to build a place, a structure where God's presence can dwell with them, as well as these religious rituals that allowed them to draw near to the presence of God. So the idea behind these laws, friends, is that they would help Israel become this attractively counter-cultural community that shows to all the other nations how blessed it is to be a nation whose God is the Lord precisely so that they can be this exemplary presence that invites nations to worship the Lord God of Israel and be blessed too, fulfilling their purpose as the family through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. But these laws, which were intended to expose humanity's inability to be faithful covenant partners and then provide a system, a mechanism for them to bridge humanity to God, the nation of Israel instead used as a wall to keep other nations away because they turned something that was meant to cultivate a covenantal partnership that generates love and obedience into this contractual, transactional relationship whereby the law became just this list of rigid requirements they had to fulfill so that they may earn somehow God's blessing. So it's too bad for the nations because they weren't chosen. They didn't have the law. In fact, Israel should stay away from them because they're not living according to the law. And now the, if they get influenced by the nation's lawlessness, it's bad news for Israel because then they don't get the blessing. In other words, sin caused the Jews to hijack a divine command that was intended for good to turn it into this dividing line between those who were included and excluded from the covenant blessings. And this sentiment was so ingrained in the people of Israel that even the Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah were self-righteously pinching their noses at the Gentiles saying, your background and your way of life is unclean and immoral, so you can't be possibly part of God's covenant family until you get it right and become like us and get circumcised and follow the Torah. And the Gentiles were understandably offended at this notion, and so this misuse of the law drove them apart. This is, friends, what the tension that, uh, the tension that Paul was putting his finger on in verses and 12, he wasn't pitying the non-Jews for being uncircumcised, right, or for being born in the wrong ethnicity. 
Rather, he was actually making an indictment against the self-righteousness that plagued the Jews, pointing out that their misuse of the law was really harmful for the Gentiles, even going as far as that their tribalistic legalism has even separated the Gentiles from Christ, from the Messiah. Instead of being the way God's, na- God's blessing goes out to the nations, they made the nations strangers to the covenant, denying them access to God, effectively denying them of w- what is their only hope, to be freed from their sins that they were enslaved to. Because remember what we talked about last week, how we're all on the same boat, dead in our sins and apart from Jesus children of wrath. Now, to the young, reformed, and restless among us, relax, right? I'm not saying that anybody's self-righteousness is going to decisively prevent anybody from being saved, right? God's sovereign, His Spirit is effective, so whoever is supposed to be in heaven is going to be there. But nonetheless, it's undeniable that the consequence of our self-righteousness is that we'll not be a help to God's purpose to save the nations, by inviting them to trust Jesus, but instead will end up being a hindrance, an obstacle that God has to work around instead of a partner He's actually working with. Because now, all those who have faith in Jesus are called children of Abraham by faith. Therefore, we, the church, are now called to be this attractively countercultural community that invites all people to worship our merciful God. But unfortunately, we too so often fail to be this kind of community. Our communities are so often divided and exclusive because likewise, sin has also hijacked something that is usually a good thing and distorted it into an ultimate thing by using it as the thing that defines us or gives us value making us feel like we have the right to judge other people based on whether or not they have this good thing. So let me give you an example to make this more vivid, because our own tradition is certainly guilty of it. Any guesses on what the Reformed tradition values most? Our superior theology, right? Now, is Reformed theology a good and helpful thing? Absolutely, right? As far as CCC is concerned. But what happens when we make this into the ultimate thing? Well, we start being divisive, don't we? The theology that is meant to lead us into a deeper worship and appreciation of what God has done becomes something that we lord over people. Using it to decide whether or not we want to associate with other Christians and really treat them as a brother in Christ instead of someone who has these dangerous values being more interested in correcting Christians of other traditions than worshiping with them. And please don't misunderstand, friends. I'm not saying at all that we should just be affirming all theologies. There are some really dangerous and misleading ones out there. But certainly, I've experienced that my pride and our theology have certainly made me sit with the posture of a critic and not one of a disciple when a servant of the Lord is genuinely trying to minister the Word of God to me because I've made my theology the ultimate thing. 
and I've certainly burned some bridges because I was overzealously arguing with other Christians to prove that my theology is right. There are so many ways that we do this, even beyond the context of the church. We discriminate other people based on their culture, their level of education, where they're educated, their political views, and so on and so forth, just to name a few. So what's your thing, right? What do you use to feel like you're better than other people? If you search your heart, friends, I wouldn't be surprised if you do find something. Because it is a classic strategy of sin to divide humanity, to divide us by using something good to define our identity and then comparing ourselves with one another. And I think it's extremely important to acknowledge that sin does this. Because this way, we can stop using something good like God's laws as a basis of comparison and actually use it for its purpose to nurture the unity of the community, which is point two, why only Jesus can unify us. So we just saw Paul describe the problem, and it's a condition so pervasive in human nature that it's almost impossible for us to find any kind of meaningful and lasting sort of unity in our communities. And so, what's the solution? Spoiler, as the title of the point suggests, it's Jesus, right? Simple. But how Paul describes in this passage, in verses 13 to 16, about how Jesus actually solves us is quite nuanced. Okay, no doubt this is the dense part of the text because Paul really packed these verses tight with theology. And we're going to talk, we're going to walk through these verses because this is a really important part, not only of Paul's theology, but of the Bible's teaching in general. And Paul actually talks quite a bit about this topic in, with more uh, elaboration in his other epistles in the topics that he's just touching on today because it was such a big emphasis of his. So to understand this passage with any sort of clarity, we can't take these verses in isolation, but we need to look at it in light of everything else that Paul wrote. Otherwise, it's really easy to misunderstand these verses. Okay, so let's backtrack just a little bit here. As we discussed, there is this human tendency to elevate something that's good into something that's ultimate, then moralizing it to use to discriminate and judge other people, like how Israel used the law. And in verse 14, Paul says that consequently, this created a dividing wall of hostility between them. Now, what exactly is this wall Paul's talking about? Well, one possibility is that there was a literal wall in the temple in Jerusalem back then that separated Torah-observing Jews with the Gentiles. And if Gentiles actually snuck into the temple, they would be killed. But I think Paul is mainly talking figuratively how apart from Christ, this misuse of the law necessarily causes a wedge within the community of faith. And Jesus intends to destroy this wall. How does he does that? Well, in the ESV, in verse 15, it says, by abolishing the law. I'm not a huge fan of this translation because abolishing something kind of implies that, some, that this thing was somehow bad. 
But Paul has explicitly said that he doesn't think so. He doesn't think that the Old Testament laws are bad. Check out Romans chapter 7. So many theologians actually think that a clearer translation of this abolish is actually to nullify, or more literally, to depower. Depower the law then to do what exactly? Well, it's the power to create this hostility. So how did the law have this power? For that, we need to go all the way back to the Torah, to the Old Testament, when God gave these commandments to Israel, right? It was not made in a socio-political vacuum. The arrangement had always been that if Israel faithfully obeyed the laws that, they, that God gave them, they would be this nation who is blessed and through whom all the other nations would be blessed. But if they failed, which Israel repeatedly did, just as we probably would have, the consequence was always been that there would be this mutual hostility between them and the surrounding nations. They would be a cursed nation, and the nations who they were supposed to bless is going to be deprived of the divine blessing that was supposed to come through them. And so there's going to be this hostility towards them because of Israel's lawlessness, right? That's what Deuteronomy teaches us. So the Torah itself, the law itself is not the wall. But the wall is erected because Israel failed to obey the law of the Torah, which triggered hostility that the Torah said was always going to happen. So it's not the Torah, but the curse of hostility that's keeping, the, keeping them apart. Okay? How are you guys doing? Okay. Now, circling back to Jesus. Why was he able to reverse this curse of hostility? That's what verse 13 is getting at, right? When it brought up the blood of Jesus as that which made possible for even people who did not have the law to draw near, like us. You see, in the Torah, God has already accounted for the fact that Israel will inevitably fail to obey the law. And so God included in the Torah itself, a sacrificial system whereby an innocent and blameless animal can be sacrificed. And this animal's blood can cover for the sins of the humans who is actually responsible for the sins, so that responsibility can be transferred. Such that now the human who's been redeemed and cleansed by this blood can draw near to God. And Paul is saying here that Jesus is the sacrifice whose blood was shed not only for those who had the law, but also those who are strangers to it. Because you see, both Israel and the Gentiles had the same problem. Israel who had the law were incapable of keeping it. They were estranged from God and trapped in their sinful rebellion. And the Gentiles were enslaved to their sins and to the spiritual powers they were allotted to, right? Remember last week. And Jesus, what he did was he fulfilled the law for both parties and made accessible forgiveness and freedom to both. So Jesus is the great equalizer. He is the common denominator that, made, that is necessary for the salvation of anyone. We all need to go through the same door to get to God. So Paul's saying that no matter how righteous you think you are, Nobody is closer or further from the kingdom of God based 
on our own works and religiousness because everybody needs Jesus. That's why in verse 16, it specifically says that both are reconciled to God through the cross. Therefore, friends, the Old Testament law is the power taken out of the role that the Jews thought it had, defining one's standing before God, but rather, because of Jesus, now the law can actually be used for what God designed it for in the first place, as a source of wisdom for this new creation community that He's working on. That's what Paul is talking about when he says that Jesus is creating Himself one man from the two. This one new man that's been talking about here is not a new person, but it's talking about a new humanity, a new kind of human race, one that is no longer bound to sin, one that is reconciled to God, and one who can actually love God and love neighbor as the law justly requires. You see, Paul is saying that for those who believe in Christ, the law isn't irrelevant. Rather, because Christ has recreated us anew, our relationship with the law has now changed. In the hands of a humanity that's dead in sin, God's commands produce either self-righteousness or law-breaking humans. But in the hands of a humanity that's been recreated by Christ, now we're talking. Now the law produces a spirit-filled community of love towards God and towards neighbor. Because of Jesus, the law now can once again be a source of unifying grace and not division. Now, there's a lot that we can chew on with that for a while. But for me, one of the most important implications of what Paul is saying here is that this new creation community is not a group of people who are simply able to follow some rules. Because the law were never designed to make us conform and to make these homogenous cookie-cutter Christians. But because Jesus has indeed liberated us and that now we are in Him, the principle of loving God and loving neighbor that these laws were teaching us is no longer some external standards that are imposed upon us. But it becomes a source of wisdom that influences our thinking and how we're behaving so pr profoundly. It becomes something that's in our bones such that we make conditions and environments where living according to the eternal principles of the law is actually an attractive option in itself. In other words, friends, this Christian community should never be a place where anyone has to live up to some sort of expectations to be a part of. It must never be a place where someone feels like they have to dress a certain way, they have to talk a certain way, have certain things, or somehow have already got it figured out or is ready to repent somehow to be included. Because indeed, the Holy Spirit has liberated us all and is working with us. Not that this should make the church antinomian in some way, like it's just this moral free-for-all where we don't talk about sin. We do need to keep each other accountable to a biblical standard of righteousness. But what I am saying is that this 
the diverse way the Holy Spirit is working with each of us is actually enriching to the community. Because not everyone is going through the same journey. Therefore, the appropriate posture for us to have as we go on this process with the Holy Spirit together and learn about what righteousness looks like in our specific context, the posture can only be grace. And it sounds great, doesn't it? And it's actually possible. And the practical ways that we can make this a felt reality instead of some abstract ideal that seems too good to be true, so we'll discuss in point three. Point three, how this unity is enjoyed. So then, how do we create unified communities that are governed by grace that's been given to us by Jesus instead of simply a place that tries to get us to follow some kind of rules? Maybe a good example to follow is how Jesus made this community, which is what Paul explains in verses 17 and 18. So how does Paul, I mean, so how did Jesus' past work on the cross translate into these unified communities of both Jews and Gentiles? Verse 17 tells us very clearly that Jesus preached peace, which is the gospel, to both who are far and who are near. And again, I do need to emphasize here the both, which means, friends, we never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is not something that we need to learn once in the past so that you can be religious. And then after that, after you get saved, what you need is some practical advice to live a moral life. By no means. Rather, this peace with God that the gospel proclaims must be the norming truth of any Christian community. The gospel is what changed lives. And the church community is meant to meditate upon it relentlessly so that we may continue to discover new depths about what it means to live in this gospel story. You may have noticed, friends, if you attended CCC a few times, that we make a very intentional effort to do this every week. And the songs that we sing and the liturgy and the preaching, because if there's one thing that we hope that you guys can remember every week is that Jesus died for you so you can come to God. Because we believe, as Paul says in verse 18, that the Holy Spirit that makes us believe in the gospel is what allows us to draw near to God. So this is the order of our salvation. First, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the grave. That really happened 2,000 years ago. Then, the Holy Spirit now continues to work in us all so that not only that we believe that this happened, but such that we can be continuously shaped by this gospel story so that now we can be a family that comes to our Father to receive grace. Yes, we will mess up all the time, but we do so not as prisoners being threatened by, by execution, but as children who knows that our Heavenly Father has grace for us. 
kind of like Cruz just now, walking up to his dad, not caring about what the rest of us thinks because he knows his dad is there and his dad won't reject him. So being part of this community that is accessing God in the Spirit together now is how we can feel unified with people who have nothing in common at all. When we sit under the teaching of the same gospel, when we come to God with one another, when we access God together with prayer, in prayer, and when we worshipfully praise the excellencies of the same Savior, then we will find a unity that surpasses understanding. Then you will find that the people around you, that are next to you, though they might be strangers now, they can be your siblings, not only in theory, but we can really experience each other in this way. So uh, one of my favorite activities in life is actually watching live sports, right? Like in a stadium, especially football or soccer, as you Americans or Aussies want to put it. So on my honeymoon, this is a non-negotiable item. And part of why I love it so much is that though the game can be slow sometimes, but when the team we're supporting scores, suddenly everyone around you becomes your best friend, right? We're singing together, high-fiving each other, hugging each other, and sometimes we see people crying together, and I don't even know them. I met them five minutes ago, and we don't even speak the same language. But in that moment, we're family just because we're supporting the same team. So how much more, friends, should that be true when what we have in common is not a support for a team playing some silly game, but for a Lord who gave His life for us? Nothing has been able to unify the human race better than that. Demonstrably, Christianity has been the most diverse ethnically, culturally, linguistically, politically, in every way, the most diverse religious movement in the history of the world. So brothers and sisters, if this is your first time at church, or if you come sporadically and you do feel lonely in your journey of following Jesus, I'm pleading with you today, come back. Give us the chance to treat you as siblings, if not in our particular community, then some other community that can serve you better. We're definitely not the only good community out there. And although we can, as siblings do sometimes, get on, get on each other's nerves and even hurt each other, I have faith that if you do open yourself up and plant yourself in a community that is committed to preaching the gospel, it's going to be worth it. Because guess what we're going to see in heaven? A reunified humanity from every nation, tribe, and tongue together worshiping the same Lord. Salvation has never meant, was never exclusively a personal thing. No Christian is ever meant to be on our own and it's always been the case that we're supposed to taste and see that the Lord is good in community. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from or what you have, you are welcome in this family.
Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, blessed is your name. You have unified us, people who have nothing in common, people who have flaws, people who have a past, together as family, together as your children. And Lord, we rejoice over that fact. We confess, Father, that we often fail to love each other as you love us. We fail to treat each other indiscriminately because they are unified by your grace, because you are their image. Lord, allow us to see each other the way you see us. And give us by your Holy Spirit the strength to love and be unified to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.